0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, a little bit of what some podcasters call housekeeping. First, thanks to everyone who has already bought or is planning to buy the Your Brain on Facts book. I love that people are taking pictures of themselves with it. If you post that on social media, be sure to tag the show, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod. Now, the main thing a little bit of a change to the way the show is going to go, not really a format change per se. You may have picked up on the theme of the past few months that I've been doing topics that were parallel to, or in some way tangentially related to the COVID lockdown situation, like doing World War II rationing recipes, hermits, beneficial microbes, things of that nature. Well, we have another issue on our minds these days one that I'm not able to help with a great deal. I'm still too concerned for my health, as selfish as it feels to say, to go out to the protests, and I'm no longer in the position financially to be donating to the causes I'd like to. So the best way that I can help is to use this platform that I have built to help bring to light the stories and histories of people of color that have been swept under the rug or otherwise ignored. So the show is going to be alternating between more general history, trivia kind of stuff like I usually do, and those untold stories. And sometimes it is going to get kind of heavy. Today's episode is one of those. It's not always going to be this heavy, so please don't think you have to skip every other week's episode because there's just so much heaviness in the world as it is and you need a break from it. But on the balance, it's extremely important that we learn these stories that weren't told to us. Many of them weren't even told to our parents. And they're things that we need to know. And now, your feature presentation. Halfway between Tampa and Tallahassee, 100 yards off State Route 24 and 10 miles from the next town, stands a handsome, pale, yellow house with decorative white trim on the two-story porch. The house was the only survivor of an episode of such extraordinary violence that it boggles the mind how quickly and completely it was swept under the rug. An entire community was burned to the ground and an incident of racist, asymmetrical warfare, and most people have never even heard of it. My name's Moxie. And this is your Brain on Facts. The community had been, or technically still is, Rosewood, Florida. It was settled by both black and white people 20 years before the Civil War, but the Jim Crow segregation in the postbellum decades put a clear divide into the community. The town was incorporated in 1870 after it got a post office and a train stop, and was named Rosewood for the pink cedars that were also the base of its economy. Residents worked in lumberyards, mills, and even a pencil factory, until the cedars had been over-harvested and the factories began to close. Most of the white residents moved to nearby Sumner, all but one couple, John and Mary Wright, who ran the general store. They were kind to their neighbors and were known to slip candy to the black kids who hung out at the store, possibly because their own children had died young. The white flight continued into the 1920s, when Rosewood's population of about 200 was entirely black, plus the rights. The little hamlet got by just fine, until New Year's Day 1923. Over in Sumner, a woman named Fanny Taylor woke her neighbors, saying a black man had broken into her house and attacked her. Rather than alert the sheriff, her husband immediately gathered a group of men, including Klansmen who were in the area for a rally, and a tracking dog. The dog led them to the railroad tracks, which led to Rosewood. The mob, which would grow to be 300 strong, got it in their head that they were looking for a black man named Jesse Hunter who had escaped from a chain gang. The dog ran through the open door of a house and back out to a set of wagon tracks. When the homeowner swore that no one else had been in his house, the mob tied him to the back of a car and dragged him down a dirt road. Then they tracked down the owner of the wagon whose tracks the dog had sniffed at. When he also claimed ignorance and innocence, the mob mutilated and killed him. The mob came to the house of Sarah Carrier, the tailor's laundress. Two dozen people, most of them children, were hiding inside, having heard what was going on already driven out of their homes by fear. For whatever reason, the mob was sure that Carrier was hiding Jesse Hunter. They fired on the house, and Carrier's sons returned fire. When it was over, both Sarah and her son Sylvester Carrier had been fatally shot, though Sylvester had managed to kill two of their assailants. Had anyone bothered to talk to Sarah Carrier about Fanny Taylor, she would have been able to tell them about Taylor's lover, her white lover, who she had been with before the attack. As the mob kicked in the front door of the Carrier house, the people hiding inside fled out the back door to the relative safety of the nearby swampy woods. Not all were able to get away, though. Carrier's other son, James, was found by the mob, who reportedly made him dig his own grave before killing him. The newspapers of the nearby towns caught wind of what was happening, They ran exaggerated retellings of the siege of the Carrier House, and blatantly false reports of roving bands of armed black citizens. Seeing that, even more white men poured into Rosewood, believing that a race war had broken out. Apparently, it's only a race war when the race you're targeting fights back. The Manhunt and Terror campaign wasn't confined to that single night, but stretched on for nearly a week. The longer the mob failed to find Hunter, the more agitated and angry they became. They weren't about to go home empty-handed, not when the honor of a white woman was on the line. So they put Rosewood to the torch, starting with their church. The mob set fire to homes and shot the people who fled the flames. One woman, Lexi Gordon, sent her children into the woods to hide as the mob approached, but she was sick with typhoid fever and couldn't run with them. The mob shot her as she tried to hide under her burning house. So it went for days. Florida's governor offered to send in the National Guard to help, but the sheriff declined, saying that he had the situation under control. The sheriff did help some black residents to flee, but he definitely did not have the situation under control, not by even the most generous interpretation of the phrase. The terror almost subsided, but gained momentum again on January the 7th, when more men joined the mob to finish off the town. They burned every building still standing, every building except one, the home of Rosewood's only white family. Some of the residents who didn't escape into the swamp ran to the Wrights' house. John and Mary hid people in their attic, in their closets, even in their well, anywhere they could put a person to try to keep them safe. John even persuaded the white conductors of a freight train that came through town to take people with them. The conductors agreed, but only women and children. They didn't want to risk drawing the attention or the anger of the mob by helping black men to escape. When it was over, after more than a week of murder, arson, and terror, official reports said that only eight people had been killed, two white, and six black. Survivors counted at least 27 dead. Minnie Lee Langley recalled stepping over several bodies on the porch of Sarah Carrier's house after the mob left. While claims that as many as 150 were killed have been refuted, the number was almost certainly higher than reported. In the years before the massacre at Rosewood, Florida had more lynchings per capita than any other state. Several eyewitnesses claimed to have seen a mass grave filled with black bodies. One remembered a plow brought from nearby Cedar Key that covered 26 bodies. By the time anyone took a serious interest in finding out the truth, most of the witnesses were dead. Those who remained were often too elderly and infirm to be of much help. Whether it was six dead or 60, there were zero arrests for the violence in Rosewood. No one returned to their homes to rebuild. Even John Wright, who had saved so many of his neighbors, met a miserable end. The white people in the surrounding towns knew that he helped black people during the siege, and he was ostracized. He turned to the bottle and died of exposure after passing out outside one night. A historic marker stands on the side of the road near the house. Some people stop to shoot pictures of it. Others just stop to shoot it. The current owner put the house up for sale when it became too much for her to keep up in her old age. Her realtor, daughter, and son-in-law were careful where and how they advertised the house. The Rosewood Heritage Foundation started a campaign to purchase the home, but were unable to secure the $500,000 asking price. The house sold earlier this year for $300,000, though the new owners haven't made their intentions for the property public. In contrast to the little whistle-stop town of Rosewood, the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa was prosperous and bustling, but that didn't save them from Rosewood's fate. In fact, it may have acted as a catalyst. Oklahoma had a considerable history for the African American population. In the 1830s, it was settled by the Seminole and Cherokee who had been forced off their lands in the southeast, the infamous Trail of Tears. The region was called the Indian Territory, until it was halved after the Civil War, creating Oklahoma, which was rapidly settled in 1889, when 50,000 settlers raced to claim 2 million acres of land in a single day. Yes, the thing from the movie Far and Away. Many of the homesteaders, cowboys, ranchers, and farmers were Black. In the next decade, the Black population in the region rose from 3,000 To 55,000. More people of all races came to the territory in 1905 when oil was discovered. No sooner had Oklahoma become an according to Hoyle state in 1907, the first bill in its legislature established racial segregation. The wealth from the oil boom stayed within the white community in the south side of Tulsa, with only a small portion trickling to the black community in the north side of the city. There were needs in northern Tulsa, and young Black entrepreneurs filled them. The first business started within the community was a grocery store, and before long there were over a hundred Black-owned businesses, including schools, theaters, and 15 doctor's offices to serve their underserved community. Greenwood was a place where a Black person could make a name for themselves. It became so prestigious and well-known throughout the country that Booker T. Washington coined the term Negro Wall Street of America, and many have since referred to it as the Black Wall Street. Therein lay the problem. Those 50 blocks of economic independence and even prosperity were a threat to white supremacy. On May 31st, 1929, 19 year old Dick Rowland was working as a shoe shiner in white downtown Tulsa when he needed a bathroom break. Because of segregation laws, the only restroom open to blacks was on the upper floor of the Drexel building. The operator of the elevator that Roland got into was a young white woman named Sarah Page. Something happened in the elevator. No one is really sure what. Roland might have accidentally stepped on Page's foot, or tripped getting into the elevator and grabbed Page's arm to steady himself. But we'll never know. Most accounts say that Page screamed. Roland, understandably alarmed, fled the elevator when the door opened, but he was seen by a white store clerk who reported the incident to the police as an assault. The report of assault was quickly twisted into a rumor of attempted rape. Roland was arrested and jailed. The Tulsa Tribune published a story with the headline NAB NEGRO FOR ATTACKING GIRL IN AN ELEVATOR and an editorial titled To lynch Negro tonight. It didn't take much to encourage the white citizens of Tulsa to lynch anyone. Not long before this incident, they lynched a white teenager accused of theft. They liked lynching, and they'd had plenty of practice. A crowd of angry white men gathered outside the courthouse where Roland was being held, demanding that he be turned over to them, but the sheriff refused. At about 9 p.m., Word of what was happening at the courthouse reached Greenwood, and two dozen or so black men, many of them World War I veterans, went down to the courthouse and offered to help protect Roland. The sheriff refused them too, and they returned to Greenwood. The white mob didn't like the sight of a gathering of black men near their target, so they tried to break into the National Guard armory to steal weapons, but were repelled by the guards. Word on the street in Greenwood became that the white mob was storming the courthouse, so another group of black men, three times larger than the first, went back to the courthouse and offered their services again and were again declined. As they were leaving, a white man tried to take the weapon from the hands of a black veteran, and a shot was fired. It was the starter pistol on the race to end Greenwood. The black men, outnumbered, retreated to Greenwood, and the white mob followed. There were gun battles in the streets. The police eventually got involved by joining the white mob. Some city officials even deputized and armed white men and sent them into the fray. As the number of white attackers grew, so did rumors of black reinforcements from other towns, which escalated the violence. No one was safe. As dawn broke, thousands of white men were looting and burning Greenwood even threatening to kill firefighters who showed up to contain the blaze. It's even been reported more recently that private airplanes were used to drop kerosene bombs on houses. White men perched in high places performed Negro reconnaissance missions, shooting at Black people on the ground. Martial law had to be declared. The National Guard arrived before noon the next day. While they did help put out the fires, literally, they also imprisoned many black Tulsans. By the following day, 6,000 black people were under armed guard at the local fairgrounds, which had been converted into an internment camp, and not the only one in the city either. The worst the white mob faced was having their weapons confiscated. According to a later estimate by the Red Cross, some 1,200 houses were burned, 215 others were looted but left standing. Stores, hotels, newspapers, a school, a library, multiple churches, and a hospital were severely damaged or destroyed outright. According to estimates, at least 300 people died in Tulsa that night. 10,000 were left homeless. By the end of the chaos, 50 square blocks had been completely razed. Black Wall Street was destroyed. Next time you're downtown, walk five blocks in one direction. Turn and walk ten blocks. Then turn and walk five. Turn and walk ten again until you're back where you started. That's how large an area the mob destroyed. Dick Rowland, whose arrest had been the ignition, was cleared of all charges, surprisingly, and immediately fled the city, less surprisingly. Even when the fires were out, it wasn't over. After being released from prisons and internment camps, black citizens were required to wear green tags wherever they went, analogous to the yellow Star of David that would be used in World War II. Most of them were left homeless, the majority of Greenwood's population, and they were forced to live in tent cities for as long as a year, straight through the winter. Some politicians and local businessmen expressed shame over the massacre and established a reconstruction committee. Don't get your hopes up. This just let them seize more Black-owned land for industrial purposes. Even as Greenwood tried to rebuild, a fire ordinance was passed that made new construction prohibitively expensive. A Black lawyer named B.C. Franklin set up a law office in one of the tents and proceeded to challenge the ordinance in court the Oklahoma Supreme Court declared in his favor, allowing Greenwood residents to begin to rebuild. To the surprise of absolutely no one, there were no arrests. A state grand jury blamed the conflict on black agitators. No white person involved in the Greenwood massacre ever saw the inside of a prison. Much of Greenwood had been rebuilt over time, but the glory of Black Wall Street never returned. To tell us more about the aftermath and why the story is so poorly known, please welcome Mark from The Conspirators Podcast.
1: Even though the events in Tulsa quickly became national news, they just as quickly faded from the public consciousness. Within just a few years, it seemed like no one wanted to talk about what happened in Greenwood, or even remember it. Few history books ever mentioned the incident, and even the Tulsa Tribune, the newspaper that ran the original editorial that helped spark the violence, didn't mention it once when they ran a piece several years later about the history of Tulsa. By the time the smoke cleared and people were able to sift through the rubble left behind in Greenwood, at least 10,000 residents were left homeless. Estimates say that at least $2 million in personal and property damage was done. That's equivalent to $32.25 million in today's money. No one ever received any compensation for their losses. The insurance companies declared the entire incident a riot, which had a distinct legal difference from calling it a massacre. This meant they didn't have to pay a dime to anyone. The state attorney general, S.P. Freeling, created a commission to determine the cause of the destruction. But in the end, the all-white jury attributed the violence to the acts of black rioters. In the end, although 27 cases were brought before the courts, as well as 85 separate indictments, no one was ever convicted of their actions. The toll in human lives is the hardest to determine in the Tulsa massacre. It is known that around 800 people were admitted to the local hospitals after the incident, but even today the overall death toll remains in contention. The Tulsa Tribune initially reported on June 1, 1921, that nine white people and 68 black people were killed in the massacre. But those numbers have continually grown over the years. Many elderly witnesses have been interviewed in recent years describing horrific memories of seeing stacks of bodies being loaded into trucks and dumped into mass graves. In 2001, a state commission examining the events confirmed 36 dead, 26 black, and 10 white. But many researchers have put that number as high as 300 dead. In December 2019, researchers from the University of Oklahoma identified a possible mass grave in Oaklawn Cemetery. They believe that a 30-foot-long trench they discovered may hold as many as 100 bodies buried beneath. Back in February of this year, plans were being made to finally excavate the trench. Because of the coronavirus, those plans are currently in limbo. The Black Wall Street, as it was called, never came back the way it was. Even though some of the business owners attempted to rebuild, a group of white developers convinced the city to pass new fire ordinances that made rebuilding even more difficult. Eventually, those ordinances would get struck down in the Oklahoma Supreme Court. But even after that, further rezoning caused the exodus from Greenwood to continue, as many black residents moved further and further to the outskirts of the city. Over the century that has passed since the events of 1921, a few commissions have been formed to examine the events. Several community organizations and other activist groups have continued to push the state of Oklahoma to pay reparations to the families of the victims who lost their homes and even their lives in the destruction. In 2001, an official Oklahoma State Commission issued a report after a five-year investigation that made several recommendations about what should be done. This included construction of a memorial to the victims as well as a recommendation that the state should pay reparations to the victims' families. A memorial was built in John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park. 300 college scholarships were also set up in the name of the victims as well. But in March 2001, instead of making any sort of cash payment to the 118 still-living survivors of the Tulsa massacre, the state of Oklahoma gave each of them a gold-plated medal bearing the state seal. To this day, the push for reparation payments continues. I just wanted to take a moment to thank Moxie for giving me the opportunity to appear on her show. On my show, The Conspirators, I like to tell my listeners the weirdest, darkest, and sometimes most terrifying stories from history. If you're interested in checking out The Conspirators, you can find us in most of the places you get your podcast. Thanks again, Moxie, for having me.
0: Thanks, Mark. Now, my younger listener may be thinking, Yeah, but that was like a hundred years ago. So what? For you, it seems like another world. For others, it's an indelible part of their life. Here's a clip from a Chicago news affiliate recorded just last year. My mother was crying.
2: Juanita Mitchell, today 107, carries a childhood memory, the frightening noise of a mob right outside of her home. What was the noise like? Oh, Oh, they were just yelling at us. All of a sudden, I heard my uncle say, Here they come. And when he said that, it meant that the white folks were coming down 35th Street. 35th Street, where she lived with her family in Bronzeville. White gangs were looking to attack African Americans. Juanita and her little sister hid behind a piano. Yes, my sister and I were very afraid. We didn't know what to expect. Just one sliver of the violence that engulfed Chicago 100 years ago this week, when Juanita Mitchell was seven years old. And we were afraid to death. It was a terrible time, wasn't it? Absolutely. Jim Williams, CBS 2 News.
0: 1919 was a volatile year for race relations in the U.S. At least 25 race riots broke out that summer alone leaving it to be called the Red Summer. It was a time of mass migration of black Americans to the North, many of whom had served in World War I and were now competing with one another for limited jobs and already overcrowded and substandard housing. White men returning from the war feared they would not get their good-paying jobs back. The black men who had moved from the South to fill those vacancies feared they'd lose those jobs. Resources were further stretched by an influx of white European immigrants and refugees from the war, which only added to the tension and resentment. In Europe, the black soldiers had been treated well by the foreign armies that they had been pawned off on, only to come home from risking their lives to the same or worse treatment than they'd left. In the South, the Ku Klux Klan was gaining strength. There had been 64 documented lynchings in 1918, And 83 in 1919. As happened in Greenwood, the black population of Chicago had grown rapidly, from 44,000 in 1910 to 110,000 in 1920. Many white residents viewed this as an invasion. By the time the hottest weekend of the season came around, Chicago had already seen two dozen firebombings of black residents and zero convictions for the perpetrators. Unlike 1871, with the Great Chicago Fire and the legend of Mrs. O'Leary's cow, we know exactly how Chicago erupted in 1919. There were no signs segregating the beach on Lake Michigan, but everyone knew what side they were supposed to be on. There was an invisible line that extended from 29th Street to the water. One side was whites only. On the afternoon of July 27th, a black teenager named Eugene Williams was swimming with his friends when his homemade raft drifted over the invisible line. A white man in his 20s, George Stauber, began throwing rocks at the boys, hitting Williams in the head. He slipped off his raft into the water and drowned. The official response to the incident was lackluster, but not surprising. Police didn't arrest Stauber, but they did arrest a black man on some minor offense a white man complained about. The black side of the beach became angry when it was clear that no one would be arrested for a callous murder in broad daylight surrounded by witnesses. One man drew a gun on the police and was immediately shot dead. News of what was happening spread quickly in both white and black neighborhoods. According to one historian, That night, an Irish-American gang went to the south side of Chicago and began attacking people. These gangs called themselves athletic clubs. One member of the Hamburg Athletic Club, 17-year-old Richard Daly, would go on to be the mayor of Chicago from 1955 to 1976, though he always claimed he hadn't participated in the violence. For the next week, battles raged in Chicago. Having learned from the recent East St. Louis riot, Chicago quickly stopped their streetcars to try to contain the violence. There were beatings and firebombings. You were not safe at home or on the street. A black stockyard worker was riding home when a mob stopped his streetcar, pulled him out, and beat him to death. White police arrested black rioters, but left white rioters alone. This wasn't subtle or sporadic. Even the state's attorney noticed. As the violence wore on, the Illinois Reserve Militia was called in to control the riots. Their presence, plus heavy summer rainstorms, finally brought the riots under control. In the end, 38 people had been killed. More than 500, mostly black, had been injured, and over 1,000 were left homeless. The militia remained in Chicago until August 8th to guard against flare-ups. The riots were a major factor in the expansion and hardening of racial segregation in Chicago, which was then the second most segregated city in the United States after Detroit. The city used a legal tool called Restrictive Covenant, which prohibited blacks from owning or even renting certain property. By the time the Supreme Court declared such covenants unconstitutional in 1948, millions of homes were already restricted making it effectively impossible to move outside of segregated neighborhoods. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I will let poet and author Carl Sandburg finish up for us today. So on the one hand, we have blind, lawless government failing to function through police, ignorant of Lincoln, the Civil War, and the Emancipation Proclamation, and a theory sanctioned and baptized in a storm of red blood. And on the other hand, we have a gaunt involuntary poverty from which issues the hoodlum. Definitely also check out his poem, Hoodlum. Remember that you can always find the sources and the script for the episode at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.